Full Credit to the Boys is a podcast by Cheek Media Co., which discusses topics including mental health, masculinity, sexuality, healthy relationships, sexual violence, First Nations issues, and other vital social and political conversations. Some content may be triggering for some listeners. In this episode, I'm interviewing Michael Bradley. Michael is the managing partner of Mark Lawyers, a firm which was created in 2008 with the singular ambition of completely changing the way law is practiced. Michael is also a freelance writer who regularly contributes to Crikey. In 2021, Michael's book, System Failure, The Silencing of Rape Survivors, was published. This is Full Credit to the Boys. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording this podcast today, um, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'd like to acknowledge their elders past and present. Um, this was and always will be Aboriginal land. Okay. Um, I'd like to welcome Michael Bradley, the managing partner of Mark Lawyers. Um, thank you for sitting down with me, Michael. Would you like to give yourself an introduction or a little bio? Uh, all right, sure. Um, no, it's great to be here with, with you. Um, so I'm the managing partner of Mark Lawyers in Sydney. It's a 50-person law firm, um, commercial law firm, but with a big human rights practice as well. Um, and other than that, I do a lot of writing and um, publishing. Nice. Um, starting at the place that I think mostly, Mark, is my understanding is it's mostly in corporate media regulatory space, but then you do a lot of pro bono work in the sort of social justice space. What, what got you into that in the first instance? It was always going to be a big part of um, of what we did. We, we started the firm uh, 14 years ago, and um, uh, and our background was yeah, in, in corporate commercial litigation. Um, but uh, w- when we started the firm, um, you know, we had this sort of purpose in mind of using the law for good and and being um, being agents of, of social change. So, um, so there was always going to be a, a focus on um, social justice work as well as the, you know, sort of sitting alongside the, the commercial practice. And that's just sort of built up progressively and evolved as the firm's developed. And now it's a really big part of what we do. Yeah. And so my understanding is you've worked on the Let Her Speak campaign. Was Mark Lawyers like the, the legal partner for Grace Tame's Let Her Speak campaign that was also led by, is it Nina Fennell? Yeah, I mean to be clear, it was Nina's campaign. Yeah, um, and uh, and Grace was one of the the survivors whose you know whose stories, I guess, were the trigger for it. Um, and yeah, we we'd been working with Nina for a while um, through, particularly through End Rape on Campus that that she's also involved in. Um, and uh, yeah, we partnered um, uh, on the Let Us Speak campaign with with Nina and with News Corp. Um, uh, and we'd sort of provided all the, the legal muscle for that. Yes. And probably most famously, the reason that I came to know you was earlier this year in March, Kristen and I went to the um, All About Women event at the Sydney Opera House. And we saw you on the panel for Kate alongside Samantha Maiden and Joe Dyer. And that was hosted by Julia Baird. Mm. And so my understanding is you were the lawyer for Kate Thornton, who's now deceased, who accused Christian Porter um, of rape. It was a historical allegation. As a lawyer, but also as a person with a beating heart, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, it was. Um, 
Uh, I mean, I've worked uh, over the last sort of five years. I've worked with a really large number of, of survivors, and um, you know, each of those experiences is is profound um, because of because of uh, what they've been through and what they continue to deal with. And Kate's story was, um, uh, you know, was compelling because of the person involved, um, and she'd uh, it. Had, it had been, you know, it had taken her 30 years um, to get to the point where she felt able and compelled to talk about it. Um, and uh, um, I guess the fact that, you know, it, it ended tragically um, added another personal dimension to work, sort of working with her that, um, yeah, I mean, it was hard, you know. I mean, it, it's... When you take on work of this kind, dealing with people who are themselves dealing with trauma and, and are in particularly vulnerable positions, um, maintaining you know your professional boundary is particularly challenging. Um, but yeah, you wouldn't be human if you weren't if you didn't have a degree of emotional engagement with it, and and that, that's a you know. Um, that can be a, a tricky thing. Yeah. When we think about the system, and this is something that is a question I'm sure you could talk about for hours, but I know that you wrote, I've, I've read your book, um, System Failure, um, and it talks about specifically how the system is failing rape survivors and uh, victim survivors. And you talk about three particular people specifically um, and their experiences. And you talk about the unique experience of of... of dealing with people or not dealing with interacting and engaging with people who've been through this traumatic process. And I, I think one of the most interesting points that your book touches on is how we have a misconception in society about what victim survivors are looking for from the system mm. and how we expect that they want to bring people to justice when often they just want to be recognised and acknowledged for what's happened to them. How, in working with the amount of survivors that you've worked with, how did you learn this and, and what do you think that the system, at least in police enforcement or at a, at a more justice higher level in, in the court system, how do you think we can be doing this better? Yeah, um, I mean, everything I've learned, I've learned from survivors. Like I came into this, this area, you know, not as a criminal lawyer um, with no particular expertise and I don't claim to have any. Um, but um, but open-minded about you know what what we were dealing with here and um and it became quickly really obvious to me from talking with survivors that there were these really clear patterns um and in terms of their expectations their experiences um and what they were looking for um and and then you know measuring that against their experiences with the justice system and particularly the criminal justice system, it became, you know, I mean, it's just starkly obvious that there is a mismatch there. Um, and and some of that surprised me, um, but, um, but the most obvious um, and consistent um, thing that, that, that I've observed and, and sort of heard is that the idea of criminal punishment, like, conviction and punishment of a perpetrator 
I haven't met a survivor for whom that was their top priority, that that was the the first thing they wanted to achieve. I just haven't met any. Um, I'm not saying there aren't any for whom that is the sort of the major thing, but I haven't met any. Um, whereas pretty consistently what survivors I've talked to have said to me when I ask them, you know, what are you looking to achieve here, um, is um, essentially a, uh, a retaking of possession of their own story and a regaining of the agency that's been taken from them. And how you would achieve that um, is a really clunky fit with what the legal system offers. Um, but no part of the system was designed with the wishes and interests of survivors in mind. So it's hardly surprising that that it's badly designed yeah. and, and it's you know misaligned. When we think about the idea of this system that is clunky and it, it doesn't actually benefit or even con- I would say even consider rape survivors and their well-being, why is it being maintained? Why is it being upheld? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is funny that um, it's kind of almost a taboo conversation. We just sort of continue down this track. I mean, there's a lot of analogies. There, there are, you know, other areas of the law um, or in, you know, terms of sort of social justice where we just, we continue to have the same conversation and expect a different outcome. You know, you look at, you know, um, Indigenous justice, same thing, right? We, you know, we have these fixed assumptions and we just keep banging our heads against the same wall in the in the hope that something different will result. So... Um, uh, one of the probably one of the most profound factors that um, that prevents progress in um, in this conversation around sexual violence is that we've set up this dichotomy where um, if you are convicted of an act of sexual violence of rape, say, you become the worst person in the world. So the so the consequences of con, of criminal conviction are devastating and lifelong. Um, uh, where and then sort of on the other side of that, um, because that's because that outcome is so catastrophic. Um, as a society, we then sort of go about pretending that nobody is a rapist. So, um, and so that's sort of. You know, there's this sort of weird paradigm where um, everyone knows a rape victim, but nobody knows a rapist. Um, we know that, you know, I mean, the statistics are overwhelming in terms of the prevalence of sexual violence, and yet there's this sort of conceit that there aren't any actual perpetrators out there. So this, so there's this, you know, paranoid attachment to the presumption of innocence and the rights of the accused. And you know, every time a man is, is accused, particularly publicly, there's this rush to protect them. And because, because of the downside, you know, if, if, the, if, um, if there's a, a conviction, then you know, they go in the bin forever. Um, but that sort of binary, um, which is completely black and white, um, leaves no room for a more nuanced understanding of what sexual violence is 
Um, and when you re- you know when you recognise that almost all rapes do not occur in back alleys perpetrated by strangers, but occur within relationship contexts. Um, in almost all cases, the victim knows the perpetrator. Very often, there are complexities, and I'm not defending rapists, but um, um, but it's just not that straightforward, which is why the conviction rate is so low. Um, if we, you know, if we kind of threw the whole system in the bin and started again with a real understanding of of the dynamics of of um, sexual violence and looked at it from the perspective of survivors and victims, then we'd come up with a completely different system. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, I, I see it as a spectrum as well. Like, I think in your book, I think it's Mia. She's the most lengthy story, and it mm. talks about her intimate partner and what happened, and then essentially, don't want to spell the book for anyone, but I think you should read it. <laughs> essentially, it goes on to talk about the the... the case that was involving the police and because of certain text messages that paint a certain picture and it's all about that that really grey area and that nuance that often leads victims to feeling shame and being limited and mitigated and undermined by the system and their experiences. But when we talk about this binary, and I think especially um, as like sort of having a legal background and a media background myself, the thing that I always struggle with is the idea of balancing the, the ideas that I think are separate in being able to believe a survivor in the first instance, but also at least providing or upholding in some way the presumption of innocence in the legal system. How are we supposed to balance these things? Because they are so often at war. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, and I think, you know, Mia's case really illustrates the point well. You know, she was she was the victim of um, a long series of rapes within an intimate relationship. Um, uh, and ultimately, you know, ended the relationship and and later went to the police. Um, and then after an investigation, the police decided not to press charges. Now, the reason for that is because of the complexity of the relationship and essentially their view that a jury would be unlikely to get past reasonable doubt on consent, on the question of consent um, because it was, you know, it was a relationship. There yeah. was a lot going on and, you know, she stayed in it for, I think, six months and there was a period where, you know, they broke up and then she went back to him um, despite having already been subjected to um, sexual violence. Um, so it's, you know, it's messy. But the fact is, she was raped. Like, you know, I don't have any doubt about that. And if and if you met her, you wouldn't have any doubt about that either. Um, she she was the victim of non-consensual acts of sexual violence. That's, um, um, but yeah, the system that we've established allow would allow him the presumption of innocence, and with that, the right to silence. If that case had gone to trial, then the whole burden of it would have fallen on Mia um, and the whole focus of the case would have been on on her, uh, you know, what she did, what she didn't do, what she said, what she didn't say, etc. And he would have gone through that entire case without saying a word, as, as is his legal right. Um, so it's... Um, 
like it's not it's not how you would set it up if you wanted to actually get to justice unless the, your only understanding of justice is is the sort of you know the the um notion in principle that um the only thing we must ensure is that no person who is innocent ever faces criminal punishment that sort of you know better that a hundred innocent men, walk, uh, guilty men walk free than that one. First week of law school for everyone. Yeah. It's like the, the yeah. resounding principle. Yeah. So foundational principle of the criminal law and everything is built around that. And that's fine and fair enough. Um, and, you know, none of us would want to face the prospect of criminal punishment for something we didn't do. Um, but, you know, you can imagine, if you kind of step back from that, you can imagine potentially a scenario where that guy could be confronted with what he did, or at least what Mia, um, what Mia's experience of what he did was, and had to take some accountability for that. Um, and what he would say about it, if compelled to do so, would be valuable and relevant, and perhaps there would be a pathway through to a just outcome. Um, without this having to go down this path of, of effectively forcing him to deny. Nobody ever confesses to rape. Nobody pleads guilty. Why would they? Um, but if there, were, if there was an opportunity for him to own up to his own actions and take responsibility for them um, without facing necessarily the catastrophic consequences that our system provides, then, you know, then I think, you know, I can imagine a form of justice that that could exist in a case like that, which wouldn't leave Mia where she is, which is devastated by the process to which she subjected herself on top of the trauma she had already suffered. Um, well, we can do better. Yeah. As... As a man who's worked with a lot of victim survivors, what, what do you think men are missing in this conversation and how do you think men should be engaging with it? Um, yeah, I, I think that um, what we need is we need to find a way to... We need to get away from um, this sort of existential fear that, um, I mean, you know, that probably most men have that one day they're going to be falsely accused and they're going to be in you know in the in the spotlight um uh facing an, an allegation of um of you know of sexual violence where you know either they think they're saying well it didn't happen at all or um it was consensual or i thought it was consensual or you know whatever um um and the, so there's a sort of dread built around that which drives so much of the conversation um and then we so that sort of you know gets us into these pointless um debating points around you know oh you can't say anything to women anymore and you know it's you know it's interfering with um ordinary engagement you know between genders um uh um, I mean, none of that leads us anywhere good. Like, it's just pointless and stupid. So um, uh, I think that probably the answers to this 
do not principally lie in the criminal justice system. That system needs to be chucked out and replaced, but but there are much deeper issues. Um, as a society, we really need to you know freshly address our understanding of what are positive um, and healthy sexual relationships. Um, that's not just consent education, but you know broadly based sex and relationships education starting at an extremely young age um, so that we have a better chance of boys and men growing up in our society um, with a healthy, respectful understanding of, you know, what is a good relationship and what is a, what is a positive, respectful, equal approach to sex um, so that um, these, you know, this kind of divide doesn't um, doesn't evolve with with men as they grow up um, I, I do think it's really important that this is not a conversation that, that is only allowed to be conducted by women um, and you know I find it sort of awkward like at the all about women festival I you know sort of <laughs> observed that I was the only male <laughs> participant in the entire day that, you know, schedule of events, which I thought was interesting, and I was really grateful to have to have the opportunity. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, still, I sort of um, feel a, a weight of responsibility um, to not not overstate my role, not dominate the conversation. Um, and to continue what I've been trying to do, which is to just maintain a position of learning um, and then applying my skill and you know, education in a constructive way. Um, but I don't, you know, in the book, like the system failure, like I didn't propose a set of solutions because I don't know what they are. That is not my expertise. I don't know enough to, you know, design the answer to this. I was posing the problem and trying to sort of expose the brokenness of the system. There are lots of ideas out there. There are lots of examples overseas, particularly of models, different approaches, you know, that may work. Um, um, but yeah, I, you know, I don't have the expertise or the, the knowledge to or experience. Um, and most importantly, I'm not a survivor, so I shouldn't, and people in my position shouldn't be centred, whether they're male or female, shouldn't be centred in that conversation. This needs to be led and guided by survivors. Yeah, and that's why I've, you must feel uncomfortable that I'm like, hello, could you please talk about this with me for an hour or so? <laughs> like, but Yeah, I mean, yes and no. Like, you know, I, I think... Um, I, you know, I think all of these conversations are important, but everybody who participates needs to be mindful of the, of the limit of their capacity and 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 the relevance, you know, of what they have to say, and to continue to open and leave room for more and more diverse voices. And certainly, you know, in you know, one thing we're observing in the conversation around sexual violence in Australia, and this is something like Grace talks about a lot, is you know how centred it is on white women currently so you know photogenic um well packaged survivors 
the media is very attached to. The perfect to. victim of Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and that, you know, shuts out um, women of colour, men, LGBTQI um, survivors, um, people with disability, people from, you know, other disadvantaged groups, Indigenous people. You know, there's, there's a lot of intersections, obviously, going on here. Um, and, um, uh, and nobody can speak for everyone. And, and that's a point, I guess, again, you know, Grace makes often that, you know, she's, um, she's not an advocate for anyone else because she can't be. Yeah. I think it's important because I don't think people quite understand the difficulties um, around the actual crime of rape. And you talk about it a bit at the start of system failure. Can you just explain a bit why rape is such a difficult crime and the history of it? Mm. You don't have to explain the history of rape, but <laughs> I think you do a good job of positing why it's sure. such a difficult crime in the system to explore. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to understand, which is why I spent some time on it in the book, that, you know, I mean, obviously rape has been with us forever. But it hasn't been conceptualised um, as a crime forever. Um, and when it started to become thought of as a wrong, it was conceptualised as a property crime because women were possessions of men. Um, and so originally the idea, what rape was, um, and the roots of the word um, come from the idea of a taking um, of someone else's property. So, so the rape of a woman was essentially a violation of the property rights of her father or her husband, depending on who she was possessed by. Fucked. <laughs> um, <laughs> to think about. In the, but I think that's an important thing for people to reflect on. Totally. It's, totally. So, it's so interesting. As much yeah. as it's awful, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, so to modern ears, that's like, whoa. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. We're doing well. No, we're not. But, like, yeah, we've come know. a long way. Yeah, that's fucked up. But, um, yeah. uh, but that's sort of where it began. And, and then... Um, that evolved into um, the idea that that rape was actually a violation of the body of the person who owned the body, like the woman <laughs> herself. <laughs> um, so that was, you know, that was a breakthrough. Yeah. Um, uh, but that sort of concept of properties, of property kind of came with it. So... Um, so it was always a, a kind of weird fit with the criminal law. Um, and the way that um, uh, it came, and it's sort of important, I guess, also to understand. Um, so in criminal law, any every crime has two elements that have to be proved, that what we call the actus reus, which is the physical act. So, so that would be the, you know, the act of penetration or however rape is defined. And the mens rea, the the guilty mind, which um, which means the intention to um, to commit the crime, or it might be recklessness, or depending on on how how that is defined. But in in terms of um, rape, um, how that ended up being constructed was you have the the act of rape without consent as the actus reus, as the physical act. So the absence of consent is a component of the physical act, quite separate from the mental state of the perpetrator. Um, and so in our modern law, 
um, the mental state has um, three components. Either, so you, you would be guilty of rape if there was no consent when you committed the act, and either you intended, um, you knew there was no consent, so you, it was an intentional act of, of sex without consent, or you were reckless, didn't care either way whether there was consent, or you reasonably believed that there was consent even though there wasn't. Um, but, um, but it's a sort of, um, it's an odd construction because it, it immediately places on the prosecution the burden of proving a negative, which is the absence of consent, which logically you wouldn't do mm. if you were, you know, if you were, if you're tr trying to set up a construction of a, of a crime that you wanted to be able to actually prove, then you wouldn't include proving a negative in there because it's so difficult to do. And when you add to that the fact that rape pretty much always happens without witnesses, um, usually without forensic evidence, you know, usually coming down to the testimony of two people who are saying different things, then then it's very difficult. Um, so, um, um, so it's kind of set up to fail, really, and. And when you sort of when you look at the evolution of how the law has happened and how it's ended up where it is, it's just not what it's not how you would design it if you wanted um, to create a just outcome. When we think about like the discomfort that people have around the conversation of rape, and we were talking about earlier, like this inherent and existential fear that men have around being accused, when we think about like the reputational damage and um, the way that we frame the protection of a, of a man's reputation. How, how, like, and I think, not to be controversial, but I'd kind of like to come back to Christian Porter with this. I think the question became about the presumption of innocence. The rule of law was thrown around a lot, which really concerned me. But when we're talking about an example like that, where we, again, we have that, that, that contradiction between presumption of innocence and believing the, the, the victim, how do we handle the conversations around reputational damage and, and convicting someone trial by media? How should we be discussing those things? Yeah, well, it's extremely fraught territory as we, you know, as we keep discovering. Um, I think part of the problem here is a misunderstanding of what we mean when we say, I believe you. So, you know, so there's this sort of strong social um, push to say to victims, survivors, we believe you, which is interpreted, misinterpreted as, um, well, that's it. You know, every time a, every time someone makes an allegation of sexual violence, then the person they've accused should be convicted and thrown in jail, which is not what anyone's saying. Um, so if we could kind of, you know, get away from that ridiculousness and into a more nuanced understanding of what we mean when we say, I believe you, which is, I believe you are telling the truth about what you experienced, um, and, I, and I will respect that and act on it. Um, that is not inconsistent with the presumption of innocence. Um, one area, I mean, to, to kind of illustrate 
the the problem here. One area that um, is becoming increasingly prominent, and certainly from our work, we are seeing more and more, um, is the exposure of the incidence of um, sexual violence at school level between students. So particularly male on female um, rape um, at school age, and. Um, so, so we've been involved in a number of cases um, where that's happened and um, schools have no idea how to deal with it. Like they're scrambling and so far have not come across a school environment where the handling of that allegation has been well done. And it sort of reflects what has sort of typically happened in employment contexts and institutional contexts and so on. Um, where the the rush to preserve the presumption of innocence completely overwhelms everything else, and um, so you know we've had several situations where you know a female student has accused a male student of raping her, and reported that disclosed it to the school, um, and because of the way the schools handled it, the the net result has been the victim leaving the school and in fact in some cases being unable to continue with their education because of the traumatic impact and because the school has wrapped its arms around the accused perpetrator and and we've you know literally engaged in idiotic correspondence with schools where they're saying look you know we owe a duty of care to this kid he's been accused but he's entitled to the presumption of innocence we we can't you know we can't interfere with his right to be educated so yeah of course you know like she can get an ABO and we'll make sure, you know, their timetables don't intersect and, you know, like duty of care <laughs> um, cuts both ways. Um, and where you, where you have this irreconcilable conflict between you've got student A making an allegation and saying, you cannot make me continue to attend school and face the risk of confronting my own perpetrator. And if your response to that is, if your only solution to that is that I leave, that is not a solution. Whereas those um, pursuing the interests of the accused kid are saying, you know, he says he didn't do it, or he says it was con consensual um, and it's unproved. So, you know, He's entitled to continue his life on the presumption that he didn't do anything. Um, where that all falls down and the mistake that is made is that um, the question of proof beyond reasonable doubt of criminal guilt is one thing, and that's the preserve of the criminal courts. But that doesn't answer the question of um, what is necessary and appropriate to protect the interests of the victim. Um, so, and you know, in different contexts, this is handled in different ways. In you know, National Rugby League, for example, now has a standing policy that if one of their players is accused of a serious crime, such as rape, they're stood down, can't play until the criminal justice process is concluded because they've come to the view that they have a higher set of responsibilities than their responsibility to the player to allow him to continue his career without 
any problem unless he is convicted beyond reasonable doubt. Um, it, it's um, it's a difficult you know issue to manage in, in any context, but um, uh, but yeah, you know, you mentioned Porter. I mean, the, the you know the, the issue there wasn't is he guilty beyond reasonable doubt of the crime of rape because that was never going to be determined because the victim was dead. So there was never going to be a criminal trial. The question was, was he fit and proper to continue as the Attorney General? Given that there was a serious, credible allegation against him of rape. Um, and all that sort of, you know, going on about the rule of law and presumption of innocence was all beside the point. Nobody was asking for anything other than that that question of his fitness and propriety to continue in his role as Chief Law Officer of the Commonwealth um, needed to be tested. And there are processes that could have done that. And um, it was, you know, it was his choice and the government's choice to reject that avenue um, and you know, what happened happened and that's on them um, but um, you, you know I mean you know in an analogous situation the um, the High Court dealt with the allegations against Dyson Hayden one of its own former judges who'd been you know, accused of sexual harassment and probably indecent assault um, uh, and so they approached it on the basis of well it's not wasn't the court's concern as to whether he'd committed any crimes that would be a matter for you know the police if anyone made a police report which uh, as, as far as I know nobody did but the question was was the High Court providing a safe workplace for young female associates so it instituted an inquiry to find out. Answer: No, it wasn't, and um, and it had allowed and enabled a perpetrator to act in plain sight under its roof. So, um, so the consequences for him, of course, of that, in terms of his reputation, are devastating. Um, but um, there was, you know, clearly a higher. Um, imperative at play there, which was the integrity of that institution itself. And most importantly, the safety of the young women who go to work there every year. It, it takes in, you know, a, a group of young male and female associates, law graduates, um, and it puts them in a position of extreme vulnerability and it has an absolute duty to protect them and it had failed absolutely to do that so you know surely that is a higher priority than the personal reputation of a single judge final question <laughs> the tagline of mark lawyers is law done differently why does the law need to be done differently well <clears throat> yeah i mean it's sort of a um initially it was kind of a reaction to our own experiences in traditional legal practice. So, you know, the group of us who started the firm had had come out of of, of traditional big 
you know, law firm practice and nothing against that, um, but it hadn't been particularly inspiring um, or meaningful for us ultimately and we wanted to do something more enriching with our legal skill um, at a personal level um, and and we felt that there's quite a lot about the way that law is traditionally practised that makes that difficult, militates against it and that, it, and that um, certainly in commercial legal practice it's you know, as it has developed, it's become really mercenary. And and I think, and certainly my own experience was that I had kind of learnt to see um, my role as a lawyer as you know, a facilitator of commercial outcomes and a kind of navigator around the law for my clients and nothing more than that. And it's quite an abstract pursuit. So, you know, intellectually challenging but not terribly meaningful at a kind of you know, spiritual level so and that's not really why lawyers were invented the law the law's function is um to make society a better place like it's you know it has no other purpose and lawyers function is uh you know we are the guardians of the law we we have the toolbox um and so our, our social purpose um, is to ensure that the law is doing good and, and advancing society. Um, so that's sort of the genesis of, of that idea of, of doing law differently um, to really coming at it um, from, a, from a different positioning of, you know, purpose like why do we exist why are we doing this it's um if what you're doing if all you're getting out of what you're doing is money and status then um yeah for us anyway that wasn't enough we wanted we wanted something a bit more meaningful well thank you for coming on the podcast today thank you for having us in the office it's been really nice and it's been great meeting you yeah no it's a real pleasure thanks thank you Thank you. Full credit to The Boys is a limited series podcast by Cheek Media Co. Follow us on Instagram at cheekmedia.co or visit our website, cheekmedia.com.au.